0: Welcome to reInvent 2017. Thank you all for being here. Thank you for taking the time. I'm sure there's plenty of things you could be doing, and you're here. And thank you for coming right after a holiday weekend. Hopefully, your families are OK. I'm guessing if you're here, you've heard about AWS, you've heard about accounts, and you're thinking about, how do I set up accounts within AWS? Or maybe you've already set up some, and Something went wrong somewhere. Hopefully not, but if it has, how do I think about this? What's the framework around thinking about AWS accounts? So we'll go on a little adventure. Imagine for a moment that you are Little Red Riding Hood. You're living in the forest. You go visit grandma. Sometimes you run across the wolf. Sometimes you don't. And you heard about this cloud thing. At first, you were confused, but then you figured out what it was. You can host servers. You can deploy them anywhere around the world within minutes. And you can set things up, and you're ready to go. And you started thinking, well, grandma makes these amazing cookies and amazing pies. And I'm going to start selling them online. So you set up your AWS account. You're in your little red cape, hunched over your laptop, typing away, and you built this whole application. And before long, you've set up a site, you've got the basket, people add the pies and the cookies they want, you ship them out, you send it over. Never mind, there's no postal service in the forest, but you manage to figure it out. The money starts coming in, profits grow, you start making money, and you start selling all of this. Then the seven dwarves hear about this. And they're also interested. They go mine for gold. They decided, maybe we can sell some gold online too. So you give them the credentials, they log in, they sit there, write their code, and they also start making money. And they're so excited about this, they even start selling t-shirts that say, I love the cloud. So if you're wearing any of these, that's where they came from. But one day, sales stop coming in. And you're wondering why. You let it go for a day. You figure maybe people are in a holiday. They're not ordering, but they're not there. And on top of that, you get a note from AWS Security that tells you there's Bitcoin mining going on in your account. So of course, you suspect the dwarves. You go ask them. And of course, they decided, well, we do gold mining. Let's try this Bitcoin mining thing. And you also find out that your servers are no longer up because they went in and accidentally killed something. You didn't have CloudTrail enabled so you didn't have the access to the API logs, what was going on within the account. You have no idea what happened or why. But then you decide, that's it. I'm going to create a separate account for them. I'll keep my stuff in my account, selling the pies and cookies. Give them their account. Enable CloudTrail, so at least down the line I know what's going on. And things start moving along. Your sales start growing. Things start happening, and money is coming in again, and then sales drop again. Now, you know it's not them, because they've got their own account. And you start looking into it and trying to figure out. And before long, you get a note from the evil queen that she has your account. Because you had your credentials, you were sharing them, you were using the root account, and she got access to them. So she blocked you from the account. She asked for all the apples that you have, because she wants to poison them to get Snow White. Of course, you being Red Riding Hood, you're a good person. You decide not to give them. So she burns everything down within the account, deletes all your order history. Cloud trail logs are gone. They're all sitting within that same account. And you didn't even have time anymore to go visit grandma, because you're bankrupt. So how do we live happily after after in this? And as we start seeing customers from Red Riding Hood to large enterprises, how do you start thinking through the accounts? And what do you get at the end of this session? We're looking to give you a multi-account, enterprise-ready framework to think through AWS so that you don't also end up with no money and bankrupt and somebody stealing all your information and an action plan to implement that approach. For those of you who don't know, an AWS account is an account you set up, you log in, you have an email and a password, and you set up users and servers and instances. It is the highest level of isolation within AWS, meaning that if I set up an account and you set up an account, that level of separation and isolation is the same as you and someone else within the same company. It is truly separate. Then from an API limits perspective or API throttling, it's, again, down to that account that is the highest level of isolation there and from a billing perspective. So their applications for the seven dwarves were doing a lot of network traffic. All those transfer charges and things that you couldn't tag, you don't have that separation within a single account. So that's the only true billing separation that you have. And when we start working with customers, oftentimes you'll start with a single account. I started with a single account when I started AWS, for example. And on the other end of the spectrum, we have customers that have thousands of accounts, 30,000, 40,000. There's customers that have thousands of accounts. But to get from one account to thousands of accounts, the level of automation, discipline, maturity, and approach to it is different. And how do we get to potentially that model? Now, not everybody will be in the thousands of accounts. It doesn't make sense for everyone. But how do we build the fundamentals? Most customers are somewhere in between. And the complexity, when I go from one account to more, starts to get more difficult and more complex in terms of tooling, aggregation, distribution of the data once I have it, for example, billing accounts. But working within a single account can be dangerous. People might override one another. Just like they went in and killed her instances, something like that could happen. Or if somebody manages to leak credentials or accidentally checks in something into GitHub, having that limited blast radius. You might have multiple teams, different areas of responsibility, different business model. You need different isolation, whether it's because they have different levels of data or there's a subject to compliance program that they need to work with. Maybe a different set of security controls. Perhaps I need everything to be encrypted in that one account because it's hosting highly confidential data. But another one is a front-facing web application. It's public information, still protected, of course, but I don't need every single thing to be encrypted. I'm serving it to the public out. You might have completely different business processes. Gold mining and Bitcoin mining is very different from selling pies or selling cookies. And again, finally, that billing isolation, being able to know what everyone spent, where, when, how, down to that individual thing. So I'll turn it over to Ben from Thomson Reuters to talk about their story and their approach for the multi-account.
1: Thank you, Sam. So I'm here today to talk to you about the journey that Thomson Reuters has been on with regards to our multi-account strategy. So if you didn't attend the session last year, you may not know that this is actually the second time we're presenting a multi-account strategy. So if, after this session, you want to go out there and consume more knowledge about how we've gone through this journey, um, if you go onto YouTube and type in SAC319, you'll be able to get up last year's presentation and find out more information about that. But this is by no means a prerequisite for this presentation. So in this session, I really want to focus on actually the changes we've made over the past year, the lessons we've learned, and actually talk through the key factors that have driven us sometimes to create new accounts, and at times actually not create new accounts. So a few high-level bullet points around Thomson Reuters. We are a global organization. We operate out of more than 100 countries. We provide information and products to legal, tax, financial professionals. And you also may know us for Reuters.com, which is our news and media division, which is the world's largest international multimedia news provider. And there's a bit of a shameless plug, as you'll see on the screens. They're actually presenting later this week. They've actually migrated Reuters.com into AWS in a highly available multi-region uh, setup. So if that seems interesting to you, then I'd recommend that you tag along. So we actually have five business units, including Reuters, that makes up Thomson Reuters. Um, And then we have a centralized technology team that really spans across them. And we have about 12,000 technologists within our organization today. So 12,000 dwarves that are trying to get access to create resources in our account. So that's really the scale that we're trying to operate on. So before we actually decided to create any accounts, the first question we really asked ourselves was, how do we want to establish connectivity between our AWS accounts back to our on-premise data centers? So, like a lot of organizations, we knew that we needed Direct Connect to really provide us with that consistent network performance and bandwidth that our our applications required. So, we went ahead and implemented the hub-and-spoke model, which is fairly traditional. So, we provisioned multiple Direct Connect connections into a centralized AWS account. Then, from that, we create spokes in the forms of private virtual interfaces to allow those accounts to consume those Direct Connect connections. We set out by actually provisioning those connections into the regions that paired quite closely with our existing data centers. And that was really to keep latency to a minimum. So whilst we're living in this hybrid world, our applications could talk back to our data centers a lot quicker. But really since we'd set up that network connectivity, we've really had a lot of requests come come through from our business units in two general areas. The first is actually AWS regions. So having for asking for additional region support, so additional direct connect connections into new regions we didn't initially set out, set out with. And these are for reasons such as data residency, so new laws are coming through all the time about where data must live. Maybe new growth opportunities, so actually deploying our products into new markets. And actually for latency requirements too, so where AWS may have a region that we actually don't have an existing data center, we can take advantage of that to get closer to our customers. So, this is really driving us to look at actually how much each of these components can scale. Because, on the other side of things, we've also got the AWS accounts. So, we're actually having requests for new accounts for things such as uh, project isolation. So, there may be a typical uh, compliance workload or a data sensitivity reason that we just want to segregate that workload into its own account to better isolate it. Things such as API limits, so if a new application comes along that is going to be hammering one of the Amazon APIs, we may make that choice to move that into its own account so we don't hit those limits. And the final one is actually billing separation. So the only way to actually see all the costs for an application is by taking it into its own account. You can't see things such as um, some of the networking costs or non-taggable resources. The only way you can actually encapsulate all those costs is by moving it into its own account. So again, this is telling us how to how we can scale these components. So looking at things such as how many data centers can we hook up to AWS? How many regions can we support? How many direct connections connections can we have? And actually how many accounts can we create that can utilize this connectivity? So on this aspect of scalability, if I was to really pick out one thing that's keeping us from ballooning our number of accounts, it's really uh, the network connectivity requirements our accounts have. And that's really because of some of the hard limits that exist within Amazon today. So I'd like to walk through some of the ones that we're finding, uh, that we keep running into. The first one is those private virtual interfaces, so the things that actually allow a VPC to consume that Direct Connect connection. You can currently only have 50 accounts that can use each of those uh, those Direct Connect connections. So actually we can't scale past that without provisioning new lines. Again, another one is actually VPN connections. So if you are using VPNs to establish connectivity back to our data centers or actually to our customers, again, there's a limit on how many of these we can have. And finally, VPC peering. So this allows you to create private network connectivity between VPCs. So this is important for us where we're wanting to, uh, our applications to talk across to shared services or actually our security tooling that's hosted in another VPC that we want to peer it with. Again, there is a hard limit on how many times you can do this. So this really keeps us from scaling as much as we really want to, and it's really driving us to look at how we can scale past these limits, kind of what can we do to get around them so we can actually evolve our strategy and create new accounts on demand. So we're looking at things such as provisioning new Direct Connect connections, looking at new features such as the Direct Connect gateway, which has just been released, using VPNs in conjunction with Direct Connect, so where well, they don't have a requirement on that service, And actually looking at whole new network topologies. So moving away from the hub and spoke model and actually introducing things such as transit VPCs and mesh networks. And actually asking our business units whether they can actually use the public internet more. Because as soon as you start using the public internet, you don't actually need some of these components. So it removes them as a limitation. So we're really looking at all these options at the moment. But each of them come with their own overheads. They come with their own costs and actually some of their limitations. But it's something that we're trying to do to actually investigate how we can scale our networking to support additional accounts. Because what we don't want to do is become that bottleneck to teams where when a legitimate request comes through to actually for a new account or for a new region, we can actually cater for them. So it's staying in that one step ahead so that we can set up the networking as it's needed. So once we had a general idea of how we wanted to establish that network connectivity and had laid out the groundwork, it was really the next question was how do we want to create new accounts? So, before last year's reInvent, the only way to do this was actually to go into the console manually and do it and actually type in the details. But thankfully, since then, Amazon's released Organizations. So, this now allows us to create new accounts programmatically by consuming the Organizations API. So, we really are wanting to move towards this model now. And the workflow that we're writing will look a little bit like this. So, the first step is actually we use the Organizations API to create that new account. As part of it, organizations provisions a cross-account role into that new account. We then assume it to have permissions to perform actions in it. We will then inflate that account, so bootstrap it with actually the actual foundational networks that we need. So provisioning things such as the VPC, subnets, root tables, etc. What we classify as our foundational layer. We then move it into an organizational unit. So within organizations, you can represent your accounts in a topology view. So you can group them by business unit, by environment. And I'll talk about why that's important in a second. And the final step we go through is actually delete that organization's role. It's a very privileged role that it creates. After we've inflated that account, we want to remove it because it's no longer needed. So this is really trying to get us to the point where we can do self-service account creation, that we can do things in a repeatable and consistent way, that we don't have to have someone going to do it manually and is prone to error. It's also making us look at the on-premise dependencies involved. So actually, although we can automate this process in Amazon, there are actually on-premise um, dependencies are involved, such as IP management. So when you create a new VPC, you need some IP management, uh, IP space allocating. You need an email address registering it, so you'll need your SMTP server to dish that out. There's a lot of dependencies involved. So if it takes us two weeks to get a new email address to allocate to account, it doesn't matter how automated it is in AWS, we need to focus on actually all those dependencies too. And that's where we're really focusing our efforts now. And then the other reason we're using organizations is to take advantage of what's called service control policies. So like I said, there's an organization topology view that you can represent as your accounts. And what this allows you to do is do overarching blacklists and whitelists of IAM permissions to say that all our accounts under the root level or under a business unit can't perform certain actions. So we're really wanting to use this for things such as disabling CloudTrail. We don't want anyone to turn off logging. So we can use service control policies to actually enforce that. So even if someone gives someone permission in the account itself through IAM, the SCP overrides it. So it's just that another security control that we can use that Amazon's offering us. So turning towards the inflation process, so what do we do when we inflate that account? The first thing we do is actually to vault those root credentials. So the, vault, the root user is created as part of that process. We want to vault them because they are very privileged and really for break-glass situations. We then create a set of service management records. So we have an internal itinerary of that new account. So you can raise changes against it. We then set up federation. So we federate access into our account. So we have to set up that. And we also set up and provision a set of operations roles to allow us to log into that account. We do, do the VPC and networking setup, so we actually create the VPC, the subnets, root tables, etc., and optionally do things such as provision direct connect and VPC peering if it's required. And then the final step is actually to layer in those security controls and set up logging. So we turn on that logging to get them all sending to an account. We then also deploy a set of IAM roles, so a security IAM role for our security account and also a set of custodian roles. And I'll talk about what they are in a later slide. So, things we've kind of learned along the way. The first is to use a workflow tool. So, not all our accounts look the same. Our sandbox account looks very different to our production account, as you can imagine. So, having a workflow tool to allow us to pick and choose what is deployed into that account is extremely useful. It's giving us that flexibility to say actually how an account should look. If an account doesn't require direct connect or VPC peering in the case of a sandbox, then it's an optional step that we can just turn off. Because of this, this is allowing us to build up CloudFormation dynamically. We're not working with static templates that we have to go in and hard code changes every time a new AZ comes out that we want to take advantage of. Because the workflow tool allows us to kind of pick and choose what happens, we can then build up that CloudFormation dynamically, version it, and then we have a represented view in version history of how that account has changed. And the thing we're really trying to focus on now is making it as configuration driven as possible. So that inflation phase is all driven through a single configuration file. Again, that's to stop us going in and manually making bespoke changes. We can just set the configuration file to be slightly different. The workflow tool will pick that up and then progress with it and inflate it how we want. And this inflation process is really there to, again, get consistency across our accounts. We really want one production account to look identical to another. We don't want them looking different. Again, this could be for a security posture point of view. We don't want some security controls to be in one account and not to be in another. Having an automated process that's driven by configuration, we can make sure that those accounts look identical. So once we had that process to actually create new accounts and inflate them, it really enabled us to start building out our enterprise accounts. So I'd like to talk through some of the ones that we've created. The first is what we call a logging account. And this is one we didn't have from day one. So this is used to store things such as CloudTrail logs, VPC flow logs, and S3 bucket access logs. And this is really to provide us with the ability to see who did what in our account, when did they do it. And this is really to allow us to determine things such as um, who's deleted a particular resource, who's downloaded a particular S3 object, or actually, why can't I connect to this instance? So we currently do log, as every organization should do, but we just store it in two locations at the moment, both shared services and our security account, and that's really because we have processes running in both that actually consume those logs, but we really want to move away from this and centralize them into a single account. We want this because it's a single source of truth. This is where we want to get to, one place to go that has all our logs. It's one place to secure, so we don't have to secure two different locations. And again, we can have very limited access. Once we've configured this logging account, no one needs to have access to it. The account itself will set up with multiple S3 buckets. So the reason we don't have one bucket and log to that one is actually because bucket policies have a limit on how much text you can include in them. If we need to reference all our accounts to give it access, we simply wouldn't fit it in. So we actually create multiple buckets separated by environment or business unit, and that will allow us to get around that limitation. And then the bucket policy itself, we can add read-only permissions to it to allow things such as our security tooling access to consume those logs. And that's just a step that we can go through at just allowing that read-only access. The next account that we created is actually something we call the custodian account. And this is another one that we don't, uh, didn't have as of last year. So as an organization, we've built up a set of best practices, best practices that we want all our developers to follow. Now, we trust our developers, but we really want a way of just verifying that they're being followed. So, it's really that trust but verify exercise you want to go through. So, in order to do this, what we needed was a single pane of glass into our accounts. One place to go to see, actually, the estate and whether things are being followed and where they're not being. So, we looked at the services that Amazon offer. We looked at a Trusted Advise and we looked at AWS Config. We saw that they both very much operate at a region or a single account level. That It's not a multi-account setup that you can use it for. And they also very much act in a detect and notify model. They'll notify you of something that's not being followed, but it won't action it. So we've actually built up a set of best practices we just want to enforce, especially if it's in a security angle. We don't want to have to wait for us to send out an email to someone that a developer then has to action it and then go in and make a change. We just want to step in, make that change, and then as a retroactive action, go and notify them that it's happened and why it's happened so they don't do it again in the future. So it's really that. Notify is good for some situations, but we really want to just enforce others and just step in and make that change if it's not being followed. So this has really led us to create something we call a custodian account. So as I mentioned in the inflation process, every single TR account that's created, we create a set of custodian roles. And we create two roles. It's a read-only role and a read-write role. And then the custodian account looks very similar. It's got a corresponding set of roles, which have the ability to assume the roles in every single one of our accounts. So that gives it the visibility into all of it. Mm. And it's really that gives us that single pane of glass. Then really after that, it's just a choice of picking what tooling to use. So what can we use to enforce these policies, but also do things such as cost management. So like on Thanksgiving, if development instances are turned on that they've just forgotten to switch off, that we just want to step in and just turn them off. And actually if things at the end of the working day, we just want to step in and turn things off that should have been turned off. So we've initially gone out there and started to use Capital One's Cloud Custodian to allow us to write those policies. But this account is really there to be used as a hub that we can deploy the services into once we kind of find out what tooling is out there and fill those gaps that we identify. It's that place that we can use that single pane of glass. The next enterprise account we've, we've created and we had from day one is the security account. So it works in conjunction with the custodian account, but it's really there for our security teams to use. Is for things such as processing the logs from the logging account, hosting the security tooling, so for things such as threat protection, performing instant management, and actually identifying if something happens they have a place to go and triage it. And also doing things such as security audit and also um, instant management. That account is there for that team to use for their day to day activities. And then this is really the final of our enterprise accounts, what we call the shared services account. And this was originally designed to host our shared network services. So things such as Direct Connect, DNS servers, bastion hosts, network monitors, and actually where we build out our AMIs. And we originally aggregated these all into one account, but as you can see, as this list starts growing, it means we have to allow more and more people in access to that account to manage their applications, deploy them, and support them. So since then, we're actually making the decision to separate out the ones we classify as business-critical. So things such as Direct Connect and DNS, which are pivotal to establishing connectivity between our on-premise data centers and our AWS accounts. And the reason we're doing this is so we can do more limited access. We can limit down to role-based segregation. Only the people that need to absolutely access these accounts to monitor these services have access to them. And this, in turn, helps us reduce that blast radius. So this really leads me on to actually what do we create for our business units? So what do they have to use? So, we actually at the moment, from day one, we created a set of sandbox accounts. So, we create one sandbox account for each of our business units. And it's really there for them to do team innovation. So, time box POCs, experimentation in a team environment. We set it up so it has no data center connectivity, it's its own island, a playground environment. It's multi tenant. So, because it's per business unit, we've got lots of teams for that business unit using that same account. And as such, we have a set of restrictions for permissions. Because it's a shared environment, we can't allow access to destroy VPCs or subnets because it's it dependent on resource by a variety of teams. And as such, we also do a full account inflation. So but what I mean by this is we make this account look very similar to our upper environments. So this means that if a proof of concept works out and we want to promote it into non-production environment or production, it's very easy to do that because the accounts look very similar. We can just update the account ID and then just obviously roll it through. But after we kind of created these accounts, we got some feedback from developers. And it was really that they called out a few things, such as um, they can't learn some of the VPC fundamentals. So if they're training for Amazon certification or you've got network teams, they need to go in and discover how to use some of these foundational services, such as VPCs, route tables, Internet gateways. They need to have the access to learn. And also things such as consuming templates from AWS. A lot of them depend on things like the default VPC, which we actually remove as part of that inflation process. So since then, and taking on that feedback, because they are our customers, this is why we do it, we've created a new set of sandbox accounts. And we're going to create them for every developer. I know, and it's a lot. <laughs> so as you can imagine, 12,000 developers, 12,000 accounts. It gets, it's a big number. But I can tell you why we can do this. So this is an area that is there for learning and experimentation. So it's allowed them to do it in a solo environment. Again, no data center connectivity, so it's removing a lot of those limitations. There's no connectivity back to our shared services, back to our data centers. It's its own island, so we're not hitting a lot of those limits because we're not requiring any of them. They're single tenants, so they're used for that developer only. It's their account to use. And as such, they can have a full set of permissions, so they can do what they need. They can create VPCs, they can destroy them, and ultimately we can just refresh them back to their current state. And we also do a very minimal account inflation by which we still bring it under consolidated billing, so under that master organization's account, and also we deploy the security role and the custodian iron role, so we still have that visibility into those accounts. The next set of accounts we create for our business units is what we call software development lifecycle accounts. And this is where they build and deploy their business applications. So as of last year, we created a non-production account and a production account for each of our business units. And it worked really well. But what we were seeing that we give developers read-write access to non-production, but we give them read-only to production. And what that means is that developers can make changes manually in the console in that account. So that meant that not all resources may have been part of their build pipeline, So when they deploy to production, something might have been missing because someone made a change behind the scenes. So we really wanted a way of fixing that. So what we've done is we've renamed non-production to development. And we've created a new account called staging. And it's really there to stage our deployments before they go to production, to test them out in a production-like way. And it's kept in sync with the production, so it looks very production-like. And it allows them that area that they can test it in. And then the second account change we've actually made is to create a new one. We're creating something that's called a disaster recovery account. So we can tell ourselves as an organization we have all the controls and processes in place that means that no process will ever go rogue and no one will ever have access to production that shouldn't. And we believe this, but what we really want is that contingency plan in place so that if a worst-case scenario happens, we don't have to go into a production account, diagnose the issue, try and revert what's changed. What we can do is just sever to production and fail over to DR. And because that account is going to be there from day one, it means that we can actually replicate the data as soon as it's in production of production applications into DR. So it allows that failover process to happen easier. Because if all the data for an application lives in a production account, then it makes that failover process extremely difficult, because you don't know that data may have been deleted. So the accounts themselves look very similar. They're set up in the same way through the inflation process. The only thing that really changes is that those security processes just elevate, the security controls elevate as we go up through the environments, and the access to them get more and more restrictive. As you can see, we've really started small, so we create a, a small set of accounts for each of our business units. We keep talking to them to find out what are their new applications that are coming along, when would they need a new account, as in what type of use cases are coming in the future. And this is really because in a multi-account strategy, what I really consider as being the pivotal and where you should concentrate on is actually how many of these accounts you should create. Because if you actually create them at a per-business unit level, you're going to have a very small number. But if you switch to it being more of a per microservice, then you're very drastically gonna get into the thousands. So we're really there to focus on starting small, laying down the processes that are in place to set us up for scaling in the future. But because we're in this multi-tenant world, we're really looking at different ways we can allow developers to work in a setup to make sure that people don't step on each other's toes when you've got lots of developers working in the same account. So this has really driven us to look at more IAM, so IAM can actually be used to provide that resource isolation between teams to really prevent that developer and team A can't delete the resources of developer and team B. And this is done by actually setting things called tag conditions and resource names in your IAM policies. So when we onboard a new application into AWS for them to start building their application, we create a set of human roles that they actually log into the account as with federation. And that's on a per-project level. So they're logging in as an account, or sorry, as a project. So what that means is we can actually set conditions in these policies. So giving an example, so looking at EC2 terminate instances, controlling who can terminate an instance. We can set a condition, using the conditional operator string equals, which says that if this property exists, then it must equal this value. So in this example, The developer would only be able to terminate an instance where it was tagged with a tag named app ID, and it was equal to 123. So if they tried to delete a resource owned by someone else uh, with a different application ID, they would get a permission denied. Because we have that mandatory tagging policy out there that enforces that every single one of our resources has these tags applied, such as an application ID, we can do this fairly easily. And because not all applications actually support this tag-based permissioning, um, we actually can use things such as resource names as well, where that ability is not available. So looking at the action, I am pass role, so the ability to pass an IAM role to a service. We can actually set a resource name on it that includes a value and a wildcard, which basically says you can only pass this IAM role if it starts with your application ID. So this is a good way of actually limiting who can pass the IAM roles around by different teams, and it's limited just to them. So as you can imagine, this does come with some overhead, and we're still experiencing this as we go along. And also, there isn't 100% coverage, so not all Amazon services support tag-based permissioning and IAM roles, all resource names. But we're really finding that once we write these first set of policies, once we employ templates and automation, we think that it's actually going to be fairly easy to manage. Because it's actually, after that, it's just the process of when a new Amazon server comes out, you write another set of policies just for that service. So this, there is a bit of management. But when you can start applying this automation, it actually makes things a lot easier. So this is something we're really considering looking at. So this really brings me to the last of our business unit accounts. And this is what we look at, we're calling a CICD account. And this is one we haven't created yet, but it's one we're about to. So after we provisioned kind of the dev, the staging, the production accounts, so our software development lifecycle accounts, we realized we didn't really have a good location to store our CI CD pipelines. We could have deployed them into these accounts, but actually they would be deploying in cross environments, which didn't feel right. And then also we looked at kind of the shared services, so deploying the CI CD pipelines there, but again, we wanted that account to be extremely limited access. So we're looking at a new place to store our CI/CD pipelines and actually perform things such as chaos engineering, so testing how self-healing our applications are, because we really want to make sure of that. The cloud is there to use these types of tools. So this is driving us to create what we're going to call a CI/CD account, and we're going to create one per business unit. It's there to host the build pipelines and things like the artifact store. Then, as part of that process, we'll deploy a set of cross-account roles, one into each of the accounts, which will give the build pipeline access to deploy into it. And again, we'll employ those resource-based permissioning that I mentioned in the previous slide to limit down the developer pipeline for product A can only provision and interfa- interact with resources created by their pipeline. And then also then we have the um, code services running in each of those accounts. So then the general process looks like The build pipeline will build the artifact and store it in the artifact store. And then for each of the accounts, it will assume the cross-account role to give it permission to it. It will then deploy the CloudFormation and then actually deploy the application. And then it does that through the environments. And this will also give us the ability, because it's not deployed into one of our business unit accounts, it means that our applications are very portable. In a multi-account world, we may create a new account for a new product because it's hitting one of the Amazon APIs quite hard. And because the CICD pipeline's in its own separate account, it means that we can just substitute an account ID, plug in a separate um, cross-account role into a different account to give it access and then move our applications around a lot easier. So really, this is really where we were last year. So if you actually go away and actually view last year's presentation, this is what we really present. So along the top you can see we've got our organization's master account, which is there for the consolidated billing and now the automated account creation process, and SCPs. We have the security account for our security team to use to host CICD, uh, sorry, security tooling and perform things such as incident management. We have our shared services account to host those shared network services. And then on the business unit side, we have a sandbox account at a team level, so team-based POCs. A development account for them to build their applications and then production to host them. But then since that point, the new accounts that we're about to create, we've got the logging account to centralize our logs, to have a single pane of glass into all our logs and one place to secure. We have a custodian account to start enforcing policy that we've built up over time, the lessons we've learned, and also do things such as forming cost management. We've separated out what we classify as our business critical services, so we've got the new Direct Connect account and DNS account, so we can do more limited access and reduce our blast radius. We then have a new staging account to stage our deployments for our business units, to allow them to test out a production deployment in a production-like way that allows them to give that, have that ability to try it out. And then a new DR account to manage that worst-case scenario. If a process went rogue, that we have the ability to migrate out of an account into an already set-up account, like-for-like-for-production. And then we have this CICD account that really spans across them, to give it the ability to deploy our applications and formation into those accounts. And then finally, we have a developer account. So these are per-developer accounts. And we're really now just looking at the processes to wrap around this, to agree things such as monthly spending limits, and also do things such as the onboarding and offboarding process, so that when a new developer comes on, we create a new account for them, but also as they leave, we destroy them. And also do things such as regularly destroy the resource so we refresh it back to its current state. So this is the model we're moving to. But as you can imagine, the next year, we actually imagine we're gonna have a lot more accounts, especially in the business unit space. But we're really ensuring at the moment that we have the networking controls and automation in place to really ensure that we actually scale in a well-managed way. And that we don't hit any of these limits that we're aware of. Because ultimately, we're still learning as we go along. And we're just making sure that we have all those in place. So with that, I'd like to hand back over to Sam to continue the presentation.
0: So hopefully by now, you've started to think through this multi-account. And so far, it sounds like this amazing solution to everything that there is. And it's the best thing since sliced bread. Nothing comes for free. And there are, of course, some cons and things that are there. So yes, it gives you the complete security and resource isolation, gives you that smaller blast radius, that simplified billing per account, but you've also got the aggregation. How do I get all of my logs and all of my resources and everything from all my accounts into a single source of truth? And more importantly, how do I even go and analyze it and process it? Same thing with distribution of that data. If I'm generating billing reports across all of my accounts, how do I tell each account owner how much they're spending? There's a certain setup and operations overhead. How do I make sure I manage all of those accounts? All those cross-account roles, getting everything there. You've got more complex security policies as well. Now you've got organizations, SCPs, you've got IAM roles, and you've got accounts that are shared, you've got other things in between. So when we start thinking about this, there's a set of principles or goals or tenets, however you want to call it, that we need to think through. One, aim for being automated. The more automated we are, the easier we can replicate, and the less we give access to humans. Our CISO likes to say, the more he can keep the humans away from the data, the less likely something goes wrong. Maybe somebody didn't get enough sleep, didn't log in at the right time, or typed in the wrong command. Scalable. By being automated, we also want something that's scalable. As I create additional accounts, as I launch them, I want to be able to create them easily and scale out, and be able to do that aggregation, that distribution. Make it as self-service as possible. You don't want to be the one that's getting the call at 3 o'clock in the morning because somebody isn't logging into an account where they're trying to create something. Being able to provide a self-service while still being able to define guardrails instead of being blockers around it. What can people do? Defining those rules and policies and being able to action on them, sometimes automatically, sometimes an email. Sometimes I'll get an email if I put in something that's open to the world on the internet. I'll get a note that says, take a look at it. Does it need to be on the internet? auditable. I need to be able to view what's going on within the accounts and know if there's any potential areas of risk. And finally, and I think most importantly, is being flexible. As new services come out, as new approaches come out, this model will change. There's something you start out with today, but there'll be unique requirements. In fact, what Thomson Reuters actually varies slightly from the framework we're about to show you, because there's specific requirements and things that they needed. Then when I start setting up every account, there is a set of things I need to do on day one. Take my root credentials and lock those away. Create my initial admin user group, put one or two people in there, and that's my break class. But the root account should almost never use it, even for your personal account at home. Keep that locked away. Certainly don't generate access keys for it, because that account has got unlimited powers. I can't go into the account and establish a policy. Enable CloudTrail, not just for the region you're operating in, but for every region. If somebody does compromise your account, they're going to aim to launch things in every single region that they can, especially if they're trying to do Bitcoin mining or other things. So enable it for every single region. It's a simple checkbox, and you have those slugs. You're only paying for the storage. So if there's nothing there, nothing happens. Think about your enterprise role, development teams, QA administrators. What does that map into in terms of privileges within the AWS environment? Can a developer go kill a production server? And we start thinking through how do we build this. Federate into all of your accounts. The only exception might be the developer sandboxes. And that's a decision that gets made at some point. But you federate into the account. That means the joiner and lever process, if somebody comes into your organization, they get access. If they leave, you've got policies in place already to remove them from your central directory. So immediately their access is revoked. That cross-account role to the security account to be able to audit and verify and validate what's running, make sure that's created in every single account. And think about the actions and conditions that you want to apply to the accounts. Maybe I don't want non-encrypted EBS volumes. I want to make sure that every object in every S3 bucket is an encrypted object. I can think about these actions and conditions and define what I want them to look like. So then what accounts should I create? Well, first one is our master organizations account. That spans everything. All the accounts are there. The billing goes into that. You can define service control policies. From there, there is these central or enterprise accounts that you'll create. These get created once. Your logging account, your security account, direct connect or networking account, shared services, billing tooling. Then once I've defined those, now there's the accounts per product line or per business unit. So maybe my sandbox, my dev, my pre-prod, my prod. And then finally, back to that idea of being flexible, there will be other accounts you will need to create. Might be for compliance reason, might be for some other random reason, but be aware that you will at some point have to create them. And just like TR went from having a certain approach and now creating additional accounts. Or at Riding Hood, from going into a single account and creating two to start building things out. We need to be flexible. So to quickly go through each one of those accounts, the first one is our organization's master account. It's not connected to your data center. There's very minimal resources in it. It's where your bills and things go. It's also where you can define your service control policies, your volume discounts, minimal resources, of any. And the amount of access to that account should be as limited as possible. That is a very powerful account. Even if you don't have a cross-account role into things, that account can go turn off everything because it can define a service control policy that blocks access to everything else. When an AWS organization is used to create an account, there is a cross-account role that it creates in the sub-account. You take that and you use it to to do the initial baselining of the account. Things like creating the role for the security account, or in the case of TR, also for the custodian account. But you delete that role when you're done with it. We want to keep the areas of responsibility limited, and we're going to have a separate role in the security account that allows us to be able to do things like that when they're needed. You can apply service control policies, things like deny access to stop CloudTrail logging. And because it's at an SCP level, that means even the root account can't go in and stop it. I can define, I don't want anybody to be able to attach an internet gateway to a VPC. You've defined a VPC, it's connected to your data center through a direct connect or a VPN, and you don't want anyone to be able to attach an internet gateway. I can define a policy like this as an SCP and do it. When I do need to make one of those things as an administrator, I move it into a maintenance maybe group. Make that change, move it back, and this way the policies apply. Once we've done that and created our organization's account, Where do we put all of our logs? We create a logging account. It's a centralized place. You create a versioned S3 bucket. Every time you add an object, it creates a new version. It's restricted. You enable MFA delete on that bucket, meaning that every time I try and delete an object, I have to enter an MFA token. Because these are your single source of truth logs, things like your CloudTrail logs, your security logs, and extremely limited access. There should be almost no one logging into the account. You'll provide read-only access to the logs to other accounts that need them. So for each developer, for example, access to their own CloudTrail logs. But it's very limited. There should almost be no one logging into that account. And it's there to hold the logs as your single source of truth. Once we've created that, let's move on to the security account. You could have created security first, but we need somewhere to store the logs. So we create the security account. We send our logs to the logging account. Again, CloudTrail, VPC flow logs, all the logs you've got enabled, at least around the security portion of it. That might be connected to your data center, depending on how your security tooling works. Some customers might have it. Some customers may not. But it's an option for you. That could be through Direct Connect or a VPN. Your security tools and auditing tools. Maybe things that are processing and analyzing your CloudTrail. AWS config rules, and it hosts that cross-account read-write role. There's going to be two roles. A read-only role, that's the one that audits the environment, checks for what's going on, and does scans. Are any security groups open to the whole world? And if so, should they be? There's a read-write role for your incident response, for example. There's a compromise, or something is wrong. I can't call the person, or I can't page them. Maybe I log in, and I do something to stop it. Maybe isolate a compromised instance. Again, extremely limited access. Certainly more limited access for the ability to assume that read-write role, because that role can do anything in any of the accounts. Once you've created that, the next one is our Direct Connect or our network account. For some customers, you might need Direct Connect. For others, you don't. But this idea of areas of responsibility, I have an area of responsibility and business critical infrastructure, such as Direct Connect, and I separate into that account. And you'll see that theme work throughout. It's all about the areas of responsibility, what can I limit as a blast radius, and what do I allow people to do? So again, I send its logs into the logging account, limited access, and I start building it down. Then shared services. There might be common tooling and services you need to provide for your organization. And again, connect that one to your data center. It might need access to a central directory or other resources. Its logs going to the logging account. We're going to do a backfill step here and connect it to the security account because the security team will probably need access to the resources that are running in shared services. And again, things like our DNS, our active directory, LDAP, deployment tools possibly, golden AMI, our pipelines, scanning infrastructure. Do I have any active instances? Are there any improper tags? Are there any snapshots sitting there that shouldn't be? Monitoring might be sitting there. Now, it might be just like Thomson Reuters at some point realized there is portions of these I spin out into separate accounts. But as a starting framework to think through it, this is the idea around it. Once we've done that, now remember that organization's account is very powerful. And it's got a lot of things within it. So. Create a separate billing tooling account. So instead of giving access to that organization's account that's got a lot of power in it, there's a separate account for managing billing and tooling and reporting and things around that. Again, same thing. Send the logs to our logging account, our billing reports, our tooling usage metrics. Maybe things around usage optimization and reserved instance management. Should I be purchasing more? Should I cut back? What does it look like? How is my utilization? And again, limited access to the people that need. If you're subject to a compliance program, maybe PCI, maybe SOC 2, maybe HIPAA, maybe you create an internal audit account providing read-only access to the logs and things they need to establish the compliance with that program. And again, it's for regulatory compliance. I'm sending the logs back to my logging account, read-only access to the logs, limited access to those people that need that level of access. And if you're interested in the compliance aspect of it, we have a whole other session focused primarily on the compliance aspects of this multi-account architecture. That's ENT324. Once I've done that, now let's think about our development team. So we have this other umbrella around the developer accounts. And we create a sandbox per developer. That allows them to go in, innovate, build things. And again, we send the logs to our logging account. It's not connected to our data center. This is where they can go download the latest open source package, go do whatever they want, experiment, learn. It's an innovation space. Define a fixed spending limit. Maybe that's $50 a month, maybe it's 100, maybe it's a million. But that's our defined spending limit. If you're giving a million dollar a month in spending, I don't know, but you can think through it. But you define that limit. Not only will that help them understand how AWS works, innovate, use new services, try things out, by allowing them to be autonomous and experiment, they've also got the responsibility around the billing for the month. It allows our development teams to start thinking through cost-aware architecture. How much will it cost me to actually deploy this? So once we've got our development teams taken care of, how do we start deploying our solutions? And that's where we define things, whether it's a business unit, might be a product, or a set of resources for an area of responsibility for a team. And it's based on the level of isolation that you need. And you want to match your development lifecycle. You might be doing development pre-prod, prod. prod. You might be development alpha, beta, gamma, prod. Match that development lifecycle. And these accounts, you're going to scale those out. And you create multiples of those sets. So development account, again, send our logs to our logging environment, to our logging account, connect it to our data center, but a development network. You're not connecting it to your production. So the rules that exist around separation of different environments, higher environment, lower environment, they still apply. Connected to my shared services. By the way, all of those central accounts might have a version that's prod, pre-prod, because Again, you want to test out those changes before you roll them out across the organization. Again, people can develop, iterate quickly. They might be doing things manually, their collaboration within there. And it's just a stage of your development lifecycle. If you have a fancy name for it other than development, use that name. Then it's my pre-prod. Again, send my logs to my logging account. Connected to my shared services. It'll probably leverage tooling and things from there, whether it's DNS or a central directory. And connect it to my data center. By the way, a lot of these connections could take form of VPC peering or other services around connecting VPCs together privately. So non-overlapping IPs, and you want to think through that approach. It's production-like. The idea behind this account is that this is where things should look like just like production. If you use automated deployments, Use automated deployments. If you have automated deployments with a manual approval, use automated deployments with a manual approval. But make it look as close to production as possible. So it might be your staging, maybe your QA, but it has to match your production environment as closely as possible. Now, once I've done pre-prod, well, the next step is I'll go into production. You could have a few other stages in there depending on how you're set up, but we've got a production environment. Once again, send my logs to my logging account, connect it to my shared services, connect it to a production network in my data center, and it's our production applications. And hopefully, you are promoting that from pre-prod and not going in and just deploying it right in. Very limited access. And now I recognize we hear a lot of messaging around DevOps and everything should be automated and do that. The fact is that's not going to happen overnight. And for some environments, it might not be something that you do. So this is also another opportunity where maybe the production account is owned by a deployment team somewhere or an operations team that helps make that deployment happen when it's time to do it. And again, aim for for being as automated as possible. But you can also define that area of ownership based on the responsibility for that team. Now, as we start growing, you might have multiple teams. They might start building things. They might actually start having common tooling or a common set of services that are needed for that business unit. Maybe it's a data lake or some piece of information that they need. So I might have a shared services for the business unit. And there might be more than one, depending on what kind of service I'm offering. And that's different from the central shared services. Again, we send the logs over. We connect it to our shared services, connect it to our data center, connect it to pre-prod, prod, all the accounts that it needs to be connected to. This account grows organically. So this is not something you immediately go today and say, I'm going to create it, I'm ready to go, I have shared services. It'll become clear as things become common, you might spin out a team to be responsible for a set of services. And they might offer them a shared services to the rest of the accounts. Or it might be your central data lake, put everything in that a set of S3 buckets and allow accounts to be able to go in and do it. your common tooling across that particular business unit might fit in there. And once we have defined that, another one that you might want to think about is a sandbox. Now, I've got a sandbox for each individual developer. But maybe I want a collaboration space for them to work as a team. So again, that one would be disconnected. Sending the logs over to the logging account, new initiative. It's disconnected. It is the experimentation place. It's for innovation. People can play and collaborate together as a team. So when I start thinking about this idea of a sandbox innovation pipeline, what does that look like? So you've got our developer accounts, you've got our BU accounts, it might look like this. I might create a POC account for instance. So for example, I've got my developer accounts. From there, I create a POC account and that's where development teams work together, collaborate. Then once I'm ready. Move that into a sandbox, go into development, and continue through my development lifecycle the way I would. I could also go from the POC account right to the development account. That sandbox might not be necessary. Or for some organizations, I've got my developer accounts. I figured out what I needed to figure out. I'm ready. I just go right to development. Again, think about the framework. How do I want to build this? And it might actually be multiples of these within the same organization, depending on how the teams work and interact together. And back to that idea of being flexible and these special accounts. You might have a regulatory and compliance reason for it. Might have additional security controls, PII. You might have a complex product or a platform. I know you're anxious to get out. It's almost time. So let's summarize. This is a diagram, everything drawn out. I don't know if you can read it. The organization's account, that's our account management. Our logging account, our centralized logs. Security, our config rules, security tools, shared services, maybe a directory, DNS, limit monitoring, billing tooling, cost monitoring, RIs, sandbox for our experiment, whether it's a developer sandbox or the common sandbox that we talked about. Development account as a stage of our development lifecycle. Pre-prod, staging, QA and prod for our production. Now, I promised you an action plan. So here's your homework. Define your tagging strategy. What does that look like? How do I tag my resources across my organization? Is there a cost center? Think about your automation strategy. Now start creating your organization's account. From there, create your logging, your security, your shared services, billing tooling possibly, and start with the developer sandboxes. And while the development teams are learning and ramping up, you're in the process of setting up a bunch of other things. And the action plan. How do I start thinking through this? What is my strategy around it? And the different checklists of things to do. So my logging accounts, security accounts as well, Direct Connect, all of those things. So how do I think about this, and what are the steps? Now, this is by no means exhaustive. But hopefully, this gives you a starting point of what to think about and what items to enable or disable. Then, if you notice, there was a lot of references to a common checklist. Here it is. This is something that's pretty much common to every single account that you're going to create. We are working, by the way, on a white paper around this topic when we're going to have a lot more details and things. And that should be coming out soon. For those of you interested in this topic, which I assume you are since you haven't left and we're a minute over, <laughs> we actually built a track around multi-account this year. You are in the first one there. That's underlined in case you couldn't figure it out. We've got implementation. We've got auditing. We've got a number of other sessions there. Thank you, and please do fill out your evaluation. <laughs>